Pedalville Parks is a team of four city-dwelling, environmentally aware friends. In 2021, COVID allowing, our team was set off on a world's first self-supported bikepacking eco-adventure. We will be cycling across both land on regular bikes and sea using water bikes, covering over 1,000 miles, starting from the Orkney Islands and finishing on the Isles of Scilly. This will take us roughly two weeks and we will be cycling twice the height of Everest. We will pass through many of the UK's stunning national parks along the way. During our journey, we will be interviewing a diverse range of people to understand how human interferences impacting these green spaces and national parks and exploring what that means for everyone's future physical and mental health. So on each episode, we'll have someone very different and someone very interesting to interview. So without further ado, let's dig into the next episode. Welcome to Mind the Green Space, the podcast where we talk about how our mental health and how green spaces around the UK have been benefited by our love of adventure. I'm your host, Alicia Thomas, and I am part of the PR and media team of Pedal for Parks, the project you just heard about. Hey everyone, so this week I am joined with another adventurer because that's the theme of the podcast, Tim Milliken. Did I say that right? Perfect, it. Well done. Yeah, if you'd like to introduce yourself, Tim. Hello there, um, my name's Tim Milliken. Um, I'm kind of best known for doing a free year around the world bike rides, which was 46,500 kilometres on a bike that I bought for 90 quid and on a budget of about £6 a day. So it's a full-on three-year immersive cheap adventure. Easy peasy, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm with my co-host Isaac, as always. Want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Really excited to hear, like how you know you can just take you know, everyday household objects and was just like very cheap and just and just start your adventure from like an inspiring uh, decision that uh, Tim has made. Yeah, let's hear into it. Yeah. Um. So just to kick off, then, how did you get into the world of adventure and especially making it into a bit of a career of yours? Um, so I guess I started, my old career used to be in television. So working in television production, working on yeah. things like Lick Factor and Britain's Got Talent. And then in 2011, um, I didn't want to do that anymore. So I moved to yeah. Australia and that gave me my first like taste of adventure and being free and being out of London. And on that trip, I had an idea and I was sitting on a bus and I was going on the trip. And we were... Oh, Sorry, my phone has just gone off. Right. <laughs> just start that little bit again if you don't mind yeah. just so it works yeah. in editing sorry I've, just, I've muted my phone sorry about that that's all right yeah. right so um do you want me to start from the beginning yes please i'll just work yeah. better in editing <laughs> um, so yeah so it was 2011 and i was working in television production so working on things like the x factor britain's on talent all behind the scenes nothing in front of the camera yeah and i decided i had enough of that kind of lifestyle and I wanted to move to Australia so I did I had a one year working holiday visa and in that year of Australia and travel which was amazing I kind of had this revelation on a bus so I was sitting on a bus and going past all these little villages and all these little hamlets and thinking like I'm missing all of this like I'm missing all these things in between I was going from hostel to hostel to bar to bar not really seeing Australia yeah so I thought maybe I could cycle home from Australia so I wrote my little journal that day that I think Cycle home from Australia, Australia to England, nine months, potential rebirth, like a change of life. Um, I then told my girlfriend about it and she said, Tim, you're an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the idea kind of stayed with me and that idea stayed with me and I flew home from Australia. But then once I was back in England, that idea germinated to actually not just cycling back from Australia, but to cycling around the world. And that's the big trip in which I did. Yeah. And getting into sort of the adventure career thing, the end of that trip, I um, had another change of life moment. It's like I didn't want to work in television or any kind of job again. So I wanted to work for myself, be self-employed. And now I get now I get paid to guide bicycle trips around the world and as a bushcraft instructor in the woodland of Oxford. So it's a beautiful life and a beautiful career I have now. Wow. Amazing. I feel like um, I'm kind of in like this period now where I'm in my 20s and everyone is kind of like looking at where they want to go 
And I've noticed that so many people around my age go to Australia and that's when they decide that they, I feel like Australia is the place where you decide you want to do adventure. It's the place where it makes or breaks if you can do a bit of an adventure or not, I guess. Do you find that? Yeah, and it's very easy. So it's a really easy step to make because it is a long way away, but it's actually English speaking and it's kind of westernized. But it's also really exciting. It's got like big animals and big oceans and massive bush and like, real areas of isolation so it's a really good step to to make as your first kind of step into adventure yeah um so how did you wanted to cycle around the world come into play had you cycled before or was it like do you know what just in the deep end (laughs) you know what i think the more people you talk to who've done big trips you'll find the common theme is like no one plans or has done anything before (laughs) like yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure maybe they could be able to tell you all about that yeah Um, so I wasn't a cyclist at all. I never even wore clipping shoes or lycra until the day I left. So um, it was all a bit of a renovation on day one. But um, yeah. the reason I wanted to cycle was because it was affordable, straight and forward. Like it was the way that I could travel around the world for a small budget that I had. I couldn't afford things like buses and hotels and flights. Yeah. And um, so the bike became the mode of transport and the sort of propel, the, the thing that propelled me across you know, continents and across countries um, because it was actually affordable. Um, yeah. I've done a bit of cycling before. I used to cycle to work, like in London, I'd cycle to Camden and, and my part of my daily commute. But it was a big, big difference. Then the first day we left, I left with my girlfriend at the time, Fanola, and we cycled 100 kilometres from um, Reading in England to um, Muswell Hill in London. And we were absolutely knackered. <laughs> 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 that Muswell Hill, I've been up there. That is a, that's really a steep hill, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. There was a lot of pushing at the end of that day, I tell you. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is... To, to not even have cycled like a big journey before, to say that you want to go from one around the world, that is crazy. I'd love to see the inner workings of your mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were cycling around the world, I assume it was a really big learning thing for you the entire way around but what were the main challenges do you think you faced when you were doing it well the main challenges i guess is twofold really um so the first year of that trip i was with a partner so we had a you know my girlfriend at the time was with me and that was a challenge a good challenge at times but also a tough challenge of just two people being in the same space all of the time 24 hours a day and that was difficult to manage in terms of a relationship in terms of an adventure because Two people want different things, and it is always a matter of compromise to get that across. Um, and that and that came to a head after the first year, and we couldn't make that work anymore. So she went home in Malaysia, um, and I carried on for the other two years on my own. So that was a big learning curve of, of like how to actually work this through in two stages. Like, yes, I wanted to go and go with the person I loved, but that didn't work. And then carry on the adventure after that point was kind of like that was my focus it was always about doing the big cycle and I think in a way that was kind of like my adventure more than hers and that's probably why the relationship didn't really work Um, but once she'd left I had bouts of issues with loneliness and sort of tough times I remember going in the Atacama desert and I didn't speak to anyone for like seven or eight days and I was absolutely lonely as hell it was horrible like I was just I was going crazy my bike had a little squeak in the wheel and I, I just all I wanted to do was turn that squeak off. It was really driving me crazy. Um, so, yeah, loneliness and overcoming loneliness is a big thing. Yeah. And finding those areas of community is really difficult when you don't speak the language or you don't know where you are because you just end up cycling and staying in your tent. And the cycling and staying in your tent, you can get quite detached from what you're actually doing. Um, and to overcome that, I guess, it just takes, A, you have to enjoy the cycling, so you have to keep yourself focused, yeah. and B, you know, you just get to a new place and you interact a little bit and you meet someone or have a moment of hospitality from a stranger or you organise a stay with the Warm Showers Network and all of a sudden you're inviting someone's house and that loneliness is just pushed aside and you remember the way you're doing this in the first place. Yeah, I guess it's really hard to be in that situation, especially after a year you've gone with your girlfriend and then you've had to make that decision to actually carry on without her and then you've got the mental challenges i know um one of our team lucas he um he, he rode the the atlantic ocean on his own and he said for him that that was such a big mental challenge because you, you're never really on your own are you you're never just yourself out 
until you're in these situations. It's really hard to prepare for stuff like that, I guess. It's really weird, actually, because you think in, in, you know, in England, you're never really alone. You know, I'm, I've got family and friends and the whole world is connected these days. But I remember when Vinoha left, that was in Malaysia. And the first day when I cycled on my own, I felt completely alone, even though because I had no one I knew around me. There's people around me. It was in Malaysia, but it was like um, just complete isolation. And it was quite yeah. a daunting experience. So I have a quick question. So you cycled from Reading UK to Reading USA. Which, in your opinion, is the better Reading? <laughs> okay, right. If the American listeners turn their ears off. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. <laughs> um, so the Reading in England is where I was brought up. And it is a, it was, it is a lovely place. I don't yeah. have the same attachment that I used to anymore. It's changed a lot. Um, but I would say the Reading in England is nicer. The Reading in America is probably... It's been left behind by the big mega cities of Philadelphia and New York that are next door. Yeah. And it's kind of got quite a lot of poverty and drug issues and a lot of social housing issues going on there. So it's not the nicest place in the world. Yeah. Um, so I assume now you've kind of left your home in Reading. Do you not do you still live in Reading or? Um, so my parents do. I don't live there anymore. I actually live kind of all over the shop these days i've got a camper van i'm currently on a narrow boat so like um but i will go back to see my parents and i'll go back to see my friends um yeah it's still a nice place and it's got a lot of warm memories for me yeah uh, it's not really it's gone down a lot i think in the in the most recent times yeah so you, you decided to take on a minimalistic sort of lifestyle i guess and just kind of less assets and, and keeping it a bit more fluid so you can travel about be flexible a bit more that's yeah, sort of why yeah, so the, the decision came from sort of the work that I do, guiding bicycle tours and working as a bushcraft instructor. Often those jobs come with accommodation, so mm, um, and they don't pay that greatly. So the best way to get rid of the biggest expense, which is rent, so having a minimalist kind of life in a van yeah. or a boat or or just you know working for your accommodation. Say you're guiding abroad, they'll put you up. Um, so you don't need to spend that much kind of money on on rent and things. That's the biggest expense I find. Yeah. So what? So was it that that made you live in the um, camper van then, or was it a mixture of things? Like, what was the main decider for that? It's a funny story, right? So, um, I was guiding um, in Africa. So I was working for TDA Cycling, and we're guiding a trip from Cairo to Cape Town. And it got to March, and the pandemic hit. So we were planned to finish up the trip in in May, but yeah. in March we had to cancel because we couldn't get into Zambia. All the borders were closing. The clients wanted to fly home, so we flew everybody home. And I had a plan, it was obviously to work until May, and then I had, for this job, and I had another job lined up after that, which also had accommodation in. I was suddenly thrown home in March, and um, I had to move back in with my parents. Yeah. So my escape plan was to build a camper van and live in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what forced the situation. That's <laughs> Just need the independence, and you've been off around the world. I can imagine going back and living with your parents isn't like the most ideal situation after you've had so much independence, I guess. But especially with a lockdown at the same time, it was quite difficult. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Lockdown for anyone, anywhere, with anybody is difficult. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually think that the lockdown with um, with people close is what it's like if you're on an adventure in remote area together. Mm -hmm. The same yeah. sort of angst, the same sort of things come out, the same sort of arguments when, like when I was in the Atlantic Row and during close proximity for so long, the same sort of vibe is happening in the house where I'm in now, with yeah. two people I'm living with. It's, it's very interesting, yeah. So, I guess you just rub up against people, only when you see someone all the time, every day, uh -huh. the friction comes out. <laughs> um. So I understand that in when you were in El Salvador, you actually had quite a big car accident. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Was that during your world cycle? Was that? It was. Yeah, I'd ridden about forty thousand kilometers at this stage, so I was yeah. very confident and very sort of like uh, I felt like I was a super cyclist. So, um, <laughs> um, but what happened was I just stopped two days after the border of El Salvador, and I just stopped on the side of the road to have a banana sandwich. Uh, my favourite cycling food. Um, and then um, I got back on the bike and was pedalling along and I just remember hearing the sound of brakes behind me and I turned around and saw a pickup truck inches from my back wheel. Oh my God. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's the last thing I remember. Um, 
I remember then coming to on the side of the road, um, looking up and just seeing a policeman. And I just said to him, hospital. And he just <laughs> 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 so he just nodded his head and put me straight in the back of his police car and drove me straight to hospital, um, where I found out that I had a massive um, crack in my head. So you could see my skull from the outside. It was really bad. Um, and they stitched me up straight away. And um, I was in the hospital for nine days, 10 days, like nine or 10 days with um, suspected concussion, but suspected brain damage. But luckily, um, I didn't have brain damage. I just have a very small brain, I think. Um, <laughs> um, but it was really bad. It was a really bad injury. It was um, the embassy, the El Salvadoran embassy had to call my parents at home to let them know that their son was in a hospital in El Salvador, which I think- Oh my God. Parents' yeah. nightmare. <laughs> Give me the next flight. Give me the next flight. <laughs> it was really hard because the guy in the, the ambassador in El Salvador was like, what do you want to do? Do you want to do you want to go home? And I was quite stubborn. I was like, no, I don't think so. But then, you know, after being in the hospital for three or four days, I changed my mind. It was like, I just wanted to leave. I think I just wanted to go home. And he's like, all right, well, give me a call when you get out of the hospital and we can try and arrange something. I was like, okay. But then once I started to heal, I got quite resolute and quite stubborn again. Um, and realizing I only had sort of 6,000 kilometers left um, of this trip. I just wanted to continue it. Yeah. So I called yeah. the ambassador and said, you know what, I think I'm going to stay. Um, I've done this much. I'm able to cycle again, just about. Um, and I'm going to continue. And he goes, okay, when you get to San Salvador, you come and see me and you can have a drink in my house. I was like, all right, nice one. <laughs> very good, very good. I was going to ask how do you like mentally recover from something like that? Because you already seem very tough mentally, but something like that can easily knock anyone off. So. Yeah. It's really interesting, Alicia, because actually I don't think I ever have, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I still get flashbacks to that that moment of being hit all the time. And I feel like I can't descend um, downhill as fast as I used to because of the fear factor that comes in of being not in being in control. Yeah. So, And that's still now. F reverse to 2018, to you know, after I was hit. Um, that first day when I pushed the bike off all the loaded again after being off it for 21 days, I was really scared. I got to a T-junction and would, would wait for the biggest clearing to make sure no cars are coming past. Yeah. I just had this post-monotic stress and it stayed with me, you know, for that first week was quite, quite horrible, really. But I knew I had to push on and I did like 20 kilometers then I did 30 kilometers, then 50 kilometers, just trying to get back into the habit of cycling a little bit every day. Um, and then eventually the sort of memories disappear. But still, yeah, it's still with me, that whole kind of stress thing. If I go really fast down a hill, I, I feel like I'm going to lose control, which is quite yeah. interesting. We, um, we actually recorded a podcast with um, Sean Conway about a week ago, and he got hit by a car as well when he was doing his world cycle. So it yeah. seems very uh, very common well, for <laughs> cyclists okay. to be hit by cars. It, it's part of the parcel, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, you agree to cycle the world, you're going to get hit by a car, right? <laughs> it's such a sad thing that everybody gets hit by a car. <laughs> like, it's really oh bad. Oh, my God. Um, but it just shows that when you're cycling, is dangerous. So like, if you're cycling every day on the roads, then your percentage of being hit by a car is going to go up, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And it just takes, you know, either a drunk driver or a careless driver, um, not necessarily drunk, but just careless and not paying attention, it can hit you. I was hitting broad daylight with bright yellow panniers on. Like it doesn't, you know, you can't really make yourself as safe as possible. Yeah. And the big takeaway for me was um, I wasn't wearing a helmet when I got hit. So um, I thought I was the Mr. Tough Cyclist, super confident, nothing's going to hurt me. So my helmet was clipped onto the back of the panniers and that was a stupid mistake. Um, so ever since then, I've always worn my helmet, and I, you know, I think oh, it's a really yeah. important thing that people do wear a helmet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there, there is that. It's that vibe, isn't it, of um, make sure you're aware that not everyone is actually on the road to save you. Like, then not everyone is going to be, you know, always worry about other people. Have yeah. that awareness. Like I always, I'm always like that. I don't trust anyone on the road. No. Like I'm just going wherever I can to be safe and then not trust anyone. Yeah, it's a wise, wise mythology in life there, Isaac. My biggest yeah. worry is when I don't like hedges, like a country road hedges, where there's mm. those narrow roads and you, you've got those fast, fast like Formula One 
mini, you know, Ford Fiesta one liter drivers just spinning around these hedges and you're, you're going towards and you can, you, sometimes you can hardly hear them and they just come out of nowhere and you've, you've got hardly any distance to get there. Then, there I was, yeah. And the last line of protection is, is, you know, your helmet, isn't it? So if you do get <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Alex learned that the hard way when we were in the Lake District. Um, we were obviously following them on their cycle and I was following the film van and the film van had just overtake them and I think Alex thought that he was in the clear but I was right behind the film van and I could just see him start to drift out and I was like Alex please you can hear my car please notice what I'm doing. but obviously when you're cycling you're not you're just thinking it was uphill as well to be fair to him it was uphill he had to think about he was gonna uphill and I just had to slam the horn and I was like please <laughs> slow down yeah it was so funny because he just started drifting as because i was he was perfectly fine when he was for me to overtake him then all of a sudden he just starts coming over and i was like oh my god alex please stop they're <laughs> <laughs> wrecking cyclists and they're wrecking yeah <laughs> and cars for cyclists and they're wrecking there's a there's a this underlying tension all the time <laughs> <laughs> How different do you think you are that um now to when you first set off on your world cycle? Like, how has your perspective of the world changed and who you are as a person? Um, it's a good question. Um, I feel that I've grown a lot of confidence. You know, I set out to do something that I didn't know I could do, and yeah. doing that in itself gives you a lot of confidence. I wasn't a sports star athlete. I was, you know, I weighed eighteen stone while I was at school. I wasn't an athlete in any sense of the word, but you know, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could do this. And that gave me a lot of confidence when I finished the trip. Also, I found that my perspective of the world changed. Now, I think this is quite a common thing, that when you actually go to visit these places that are previously called dangerous, Colombia, Honduras, Uzbekistan, um, you realise actually they're not dangerous and that the people there really just want to look after you and help you and invite you in for tea and share a, a meal or take your horse riding. Like all these different experiences that you live through actually realizing that the world is not a dangerous place and that 99 busy but people 99 of the people out there just honestly want to help and that is a lovely realization to have and i didn't think yeah. i had that before I left it is incredible how the media portrays places but they they portray these places because of war zones so we all yes. think that the country is a war zone but it's actually just a tiny little area of the country that's in war and the rest of the people are just being like trying to live their lives like, please don't get us involved in this rubbish, this, you know, dictatorship or something like that. And we, we only see on the media war zone and we think, oh, dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. You know, it's, it's, it's very. Yeah, yeah. And it's reputation. So, like, you know, if we take Honduras and El Salvador. The reputation is, is drug gangs and MS-13. I was quite mm. nervous going to Honduras for the first time. And then I crossed the border and I ordered a watermelon off this guy and then I sat down and ate the watermelon and a family came and bought a watermelon off the guy and we just sat there and had a chat about Honduras and ate watermelon and they were like have a nice time in Honduras I was like thank you and then... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny because I'm currently watching Narcos on um, Netflix and that that has completely changed how I think of Colombia because at first like I didn't really think of any of um, South America or anything like that as being super dangerous. I kind of, I knew, cause I do a media degree, I kind of know how the media picks up on things. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm watching Narcos, even though I know it's obviously dramatized for Netflix, yeah. seeing just how corrupt governments are and everything. And it's not everyday people, you know that, but it's mostly governments and stuff that scare me personally anyway from going to countries like that, because especially since I'm a girl, I don't really want to be going on my own to these countries. But I don't think I could. You can't rely on the people in charge, if that makes sense, in my eyes anyway. And I think it's interesting about Narcos is actually when you get to Medellin in Colombia, you'll find what actually is, is like is that people are actually making money off Narcos and they're doing um, a tours, like um, Narcos tours of the places featured in the series. So it's no very, way. very different. <laughs> <laughs> it was back in the 80s, wasn't it? So it's yeah. Spinning. Spinning a negative into a positive, right? I like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I'm just trying to look the questions out because I've kind of gone through them as we've talked. I'm going to add this part out anyway. Um, <laughs> ever been, were you ever faced when you were cycling around the world with an obstacle where you kind of thought, 
other than when you got hit by the car in El Salvador, were you ever faced with a challenge where you thought, actually, I might just not be able to complete this at all? And then how did you overcome, how did you um, overcome that then? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, so while cycling around the world, you know what? I never really thought I wouldn't complete it, which is really an interesting thought process. I was quite stubborn and quite um, head forth into going, going into this adventure. I remember actually cycling in Romania and we're getting towards the coast of Constanta. So we've been on the road for maybe two months, two and a half months at this point. And I remember hearing these seagulls walking ahead of me and they were like, it felt like they were laughing at me. And I was like, damn you seagull, I'm going to finish this trip. Like, I'm going to finish <laughs> This guy can cycle around the world. And the minute I had that realization, I kind of always knew that I would finish it. But, you know, on that point, I remember this summer, it was July and, Joe, my girlfriend and I, we went to France for a bikepacking trip. And whilst I was a very experienced cycle tourist, I was actually not a very experienced bikepacker. So we were cycling the Ardèche-Savennes bikepacking route in the south central of France, which I thought would be nice. It was rated a six out of 10. So we thought that was in our comfort zones. It was not six out of 10. It was one of the hardest cycling we've ever done. Real steep ups, real steep downs, river crossings. And we had a time limit and there was no chance that we could finish it. So we had to reassess our plans to actually make the trip work. Because, you know, whilst we were quite experienced cyclists, this was way above our comfort levels. Um, so we had to like change the route and go on the road so we could make it back to the car after the week. Um, so it's really interesting that even though you've got a lot of skills, it's still some things are really, really difficult still. And we had a lot of chats about why are we here? What are we doing? Should we continue on this route or should we have a cycle for ourselves and the realization was we should be cycling for ourselves and we left the route and enjoyed some kind of gravel roads that were a lot less um a lot more easier a lot easier yeah. less gnarly <laughs> yeah i mean this was a mountain bike route this was not this is not a bike packing route yeah. <laughs> proper yeah so I understand now that I've looked on your website a bit um mm -hmm. so you speak at schools quite a bit don't you Yes. Yeah. So how important do you think it is that you share your experience? Because when I was in school, it well, actually, it wasn't until I started doing this podcast that I knew how complex this endurance athlete and venture world is. And now I'm really <laughs> gripped by it. And I want to do something with it. So how important do you think it is that you talk about your experience? I think it's, it's really important because it's showing that you anyone can do anything. You know, yeah. my three year trip cost me nine thousand pounds all up and you know if you think about that over the course of three years that's not even six months rent in london for some places and um so you know when you're talking to kids as well if you're talking to primary schools which is generally where i have made my talks it's about showing them that anyone can do anything it's showing that you know if you have the spirit and drive to do something then they can pick up on that and go, yeah, maybe I can do something too. It may not be cycling around the world. Maybe it's whatever they think they, they want to do. It's because everyone has a personal ambition. Yeah. They may not even realise their ambition until they get older, but that seed may have been planted. Um, also, a lot, of, a lot of the time in the talks, it's about just, um, you know, showing the kids just some funny stories and a funny time that you had maybe in Colombia, where you had diarrhoea or when you got sick in Bolivia, they love all those stories. And just to make them laugh and to see that the world is fun and adventurous, it breaks up their school day, gives them motivations, gives them memories. I think that's really, really, really important. Yeah, I think it kind of opens up the world to them as well, especially if you're talking about these countries that I know some of them probably never heard of before. And then yeah. you're just opening that up to them, just teaches them so much just from talking about experience, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, kids have quite a hard life these days. So when I'm, Aside from the cycling and the talking, when I'm my job now is the bushcraft instructor, and I'll be teaching bushcraft for three to five days in the woodland. And there's no phones, there's no Wi-Fi, and you can see these kids come in from, say, inner city London, and they haven't got the same. Um, they've, they're quite scared of the woodlands. Whereas when I was growing up, it was always like, oh, run around as far as you can, go hit that tree of a stick, go and play. You have to kind of bring the 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 child out of these kids who are 12, 13, 14 years old. So yeah. I think it's really important that they can actually, you know, hear things in talks and play things in these bushcraft environments and let them be, you know, you don't have to grow up too quickly. I think that's what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah. What did you say you do? Bushcraft. Is that what you're saying? Bushcraft, yeah. yeah, bushcraft. So it's like fire lighting, shelter building, um, sort of three to five day camping. We we fillet fish and we work as a camp and I run the camps for the, for the children. Oh, I love that. That's such a good, I love that idea. Yeah. When I was um, in primary school, we have this thing, because I live in like the Bracken Beacons, we have this place called um, Dollar Gay. I don't know if you've heard about it. It might have changed now. And we would do stuff like that. So we would go out and we'd, well, we didn't camp. We were in like a little hostel type thing. And then we'd go out, we'd do orienteering. We would learn how to make like tents out of like tarpauling and stuff. And um, I've always grown up with stuff like that. And to see that actually that isn't a normal thing for pe- a lot of people in, especially in England, especially if you're living around London. Did you do that, Isaac, when you grew up? Or No, no, I was in a city school uh, and the nearest green like experience was, uh, you know, a, a, a local park with some uh, rugby posts and some football posts. And, you know, most cities, they don't. And like I do talks the same as Tim, right? And you go into these schools. And it's, it's now even more difficult to detach them from a phone in, in, in an assembly when they're trying to do, you're trying to do a talk uh, and, and the head teacher saying, okay, everyone hand in your phones. Yeah. Like times have changed so much. Yeah. And so then you say, do it per vote or hands, put your hands up. Who has been um, in a forest before? I've had to do that question, right? And I've had people who have uh, like 10 people in the class out of like, 200. Oh my god! The hands up for forest. So there's like there's a huge disparity. Well, I do find in like uh, countryside places or private school places, uh, they tend to have a bit more accessibility uh, and they get the experiences because I think I guess some courses and stuff like bushcrafts are unless you're doing it charitably, it's uh, it costs a lot for the schools, uh, and so they don't usually get picked up as as things. Duke of Edinburgh, I didn't even hear about until uh, I got to university. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, well, this is it. This, you know, I'm just a, I'm just one of mi- like millions of kids um, who, who, who come out of the city, and I've had to rediscover all this uh, after. And you know, that's what that's what drives, I guess, a lot of my adventures as well is to to do similar to Tim is like inspire the youth. Yeah. Um, to, to, to to seek. It's to, it's to seek what's there. Some people don't even know it's there. No, and you know, as you say. Um, not having the Duke of Edinburgh, it was similar to me. You know, I grew up in a, in a Reading and the school there had a concrete field, uh, a little bit of grass. We had half an hour lunch breaks. So you can't even go and play in that time. Like <laughs> it, was, it, was, you know, it was all about curriculum and learning. And it was like a step up to the A-levels in the university. There was no other real options about getting outside. So it's really good that this kind of exists through the talks I do and through the bushcraft and the talks you do, Isaac. It's, it's really awesome. good. You're bushcrafting. You doing bushcrafting for the kids, like it opens an entire world. It's unbelievable. Oh, it's right. You've got like you get say, say I've got sixty kids coming in and I get them to build the shelters and it's a kind of rainy or a grey night and you sit them down in the yurt and then you go, Right, who wants to sleep in the shelter you build tonight? And you've got ten of them. Normally the girls actually. The girls are much tougher than the boys. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yeah, and they're awesome. sleeping in the shelter and in the wind and the rain and they're they're tough as nails and it's the first experience they've done it but it's like they share it with their friends as well so it's quite beautiful because they will remember that for a long time yeah I mean I certainly do like I've been I think it was kind of like an, a yearly thing with my primary school and when I went into high school it was a thing that we would go on these orienteering ships and we'd learn all these things like I've been kayaking and like rafting and stuff like that um, I think my parents thought it was really important for me to do these things and to learn that this is a privilege for some children, especially if you're living in cities, that blows my mind because you're, for me, it's just my back garden, do you know what I mean? Where I get to go to a forest, it blows my mind. So how do you think then that your career change has changed how you view the importance of green spaces, especially with young people? Um, I think green spaces are massively important for young people. And by having a career change, it means I can spend my my time in those green spaces and in the yeah. outdoors. Um, by showing young people the benefits of doing that in an educational and a safe setting. You know, we have a private woodland that we work in. So, you know, they can run as far as they want, technically. I mean, they yeah. can come, but, you know, they can go, you know, they can be kids and they can run and they can play. And um, having that work that I do there in the green space allows them to do that and actually to access the outdoors that they may not have uh, in their natural setting. I remember one time I did a job in a school in Camden um, 
and they had no no grass areas. They used to go to um, uh, Hampstead Heath, no Regent's Park. They used to go to Regent's Park for their um, PE lessons, but because of the COVID, they weren't allowed to go. This was during this is probably in August, and so we came and did a bushcraft session in their concrete uh, schoolyard. And they really loved it. They just you know because they get to imagine, they get to feel the benefits of the of what it would be like. I I had to build shelters for them. I remember one kid going. Tim, I'm going to build a shelter. And I was like, all right, go on then. And he runs over, grabs the grip bin, a big yellow grip bin, <laughs> it to me, gets in it and closes it and goes, I'm in a shelter. I was like, well, get on you. Yeah, that is a shelter. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> a grip bin is a good thing. You know, but yeah, it's um, it's really important that the, the kids do have access to these green spaces. And um, I guess I'm very lucky in the fact that my job takes me to these green spaces not just the bushcraft, but also the cycle touring guiding stuff. Yeah. Um, relive my trip in different places around the world and places I've never been to see it once again. Um, and I feel it's really beneficial for just my mental health and everyone else's mental health on the, on the trips we do. Yeah. Have you ever been in times and play like periods, long periods of time where you've been away from green spaces before? And how does that affect yeah. you if you do? I guess... Yes, I mean, like in terms of being in a in con when I was in London, I guess um, you know when I was working in television, I'd be working twelve hours a day in the studio, coming home, or maybe going to a party after work uh, or the pub, and then doing it again, again, and again, and again. I think that's why I got quite down and depressed because whilst I was having a life that I enjoyed, I was twenty four to twenty six. We were partying twice a week. We were working hard at what we did. It was quite a fashionable and fast paced industry. Um, I found that just I felt so much of me was lacking. There was a part of my soul that didn't connect, and yeah. that drove the move to Australia because I, I needed to do that. Open the doors. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do I think it's crazy now? Um, you probably I talk about TikTok quite a lot because I'm always on TikTok, and um, I'm on like two sides of TikTok. I'm on like adventure TikTok where there's people in all sorts of places climbing mountains. I'm seeing all these mental views, and then I'm on another side of TikTok where they're romanticizing living in cities, and it's so funny like seeing the difference of how like they do like a day in the life of New York and. I don't think I see a tree in like the entire one minute they're like going around New York. And it's so crazy that, especially with TikTok now, you're seeing kids like having this romant people romanticizing cities. And I get that, that is what some people want to do. But then is that taken away then from the beauty of the outdoors? Because if we're, we're on our phones looking at these concrete jungles, like how how is that gonna change how children think? Do you get what I mean? Like how are they gonna view the world differently? If that's how what they're taking in, really, isn't it? It is quite interesting that you know you do see that the outdoors actually has a quite a positive in the not outdoors. The things like TikTok and Instagram have kind of a positive impact on young people actually going to these places. Yeah, no, don't you? And probably the Brecon Beacons where you are has a huge numbers of tourism these days, and a lot of that is young people now wanting to take the pictures and go to the places because they see it on the internet. And whilst yeah. that may bring problems of overcrowding and, and probably litter and things like that, it is giving people an excuse or a desire to go outside. And that's really, really important. Yeah, that's actually, it's funny you bring that up because um, there's like, like a canyon, it's quite hidden where I am. And it was like green water and everything. And it was really lovely. And it only came about, it was only like really known during lockdown. So that's where everyone went when we were finally allowed to like go outside. And then you could see like two months later, no one was going there anymore because they'd all been in the water and it just turned brown and it was like so mm. gross and they just completely mm. ruined this like landscape. So it's like, it was nice that we finally found out what this place was, but in two months it was ruined because so many people were going there because of the pandemic. I guess there is, there should be a line somewhere, shouldn't there? There should be, you know, it's all about education, I guess. It's about yeah. teaching people to respect the outdoors. Everyone should go there, it's for everybody, but it should be respected and you shouldn't, litter or ruin it and you should leave it leave no traces they say leave it as you'd expect to find it and i think yeah yeah there is a, a big debate about right now in in snowdonia at least about things like um digging holes to take a poo in like now they, they're trying to influence people to take their poo with them so there's not uh, toilet paper floating around the mountains and things like that and things like education is really really important but it's also it's good that people are finding the the, the places to go and actually trying the outdoors for the first time which is you know probably a, a positive of the internet and positive of lockdown perhaps yeah 
I think it'd be really interesting because when I was in school and I took geography, it was kind of just like very basic, like you learn about like the whatever they're called, like the slats and the world or whatever. I'm going to really dumb right now. And like how volcanoes come about. But I think it would be more beneficial if we start learning about like the stuff around us and how to take care of it and like different ways of stuff like that. I think that would be so beneficial. And I feel like that's just kind of looked over, isn't it? Ecology, yeah. it's called. Ecology is something that they don't really teach much in schools. Yeah. What they did, you, well, you were just like, just, you were talking about physical geography, plate tectonics. But that, that, that sort of stuff is taught in schools, but actual uh, ecology is not so much Yeah, uh, discussed. I mean, like in, in my my school, for instance, uh, Leave No Trace, what was that? Um, you know, I, I didn't know about a highland coast. I didn't know any of in these highway, what are they called? Um, country Countryside codes, stuff like yeah. that. Green wasn't code. taught. Wasn't taught. Green, yeah, wasn't taught. Um, had to all learn later, but I mean... I'm there's more people in city kids in cities getting that type of education than there are who are getting the right type of education that's the, that's where the problem's lying I think yeah um, so there's the yeah let's get more speakers more more more, more uh, Tims everywhere <laughs> <laughs> Pick up your list up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um so um I saw on your website your book is going to be coming out soon um reading to reading how was that writing that book, especially after you've just come out of three years of cycling the world? How was it then to just put pen to paper and talk about that? You know what, like, in fact, the actual writing of it was actually quite a cathartic and, and really enjoyable process. Um, so I came back from uh, the trip in, in summer of 2018. I then got a job in the Middle East in the winter teaching yeah. stand-up paddleboarding. And that's when I started writing it because I had all this time in this apartment in, in Qatar. Oh, well, I just start writing the book. And it was actually just flowed out of me, all these stories and lived experiences. And it was really fun to reflect and to write about the trip. Kind of brought it to an end. Um, I've got a copy here. Reading to Reading. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> we, need to, yeah. we need to read that um, before we go. Yes, definitely. Um, uh, but you know what was really hard was the editing process. It takes ages and it's really, really difficult to then select the bits you want to keep. I actually won a competition with an American editor um, who picked my synopsis out of a few thousand submissions to, to do a $2,000 edit on it. So I was very, very lucky. But And she did a really good job. But at the same time, it just took six months. And I, you know, the book then started to become, you know, I finished the trip in 2018. And it's going to be released now in February 2021. So it's taken such a long time to actually get to publication. Um, the, so the editing part was uh, a lot more hard than the writing. The writing is actually quite enjoyable. Yeah. Were there any um, bits that you had to take out? Were you really? Did you have to take out like actual stories or? No, um, not. In I had to cut down the length of it because it was too long. Um, yeah. And you know. People don't want to read about every time I went to a, a bar and had a beer or every time I put my tent up. That's not an interesting story. Um, so that was a really good selective edit. Like all the important stories um, are still in there. All the funny stories are still in there. Um, but yeah, I just, I've now made it a lot tighter so it reads a lot better and should be more interesting for the reader, which is yeah. when you're writing, you don't often think about the reader, you only think about yourself. And that's the, the, the spin of the editing process. Um, so I'm quite happy that it's gone through that process. Otherwise, it'd be a very different and much longer book. Yeah. <laughs> Super impressed you're able to recall everything. Like sometimes, yeah. like it's such a long, like, you know, a whole year also. Uh, you didn't write any any notes or leave any no, on, on the way. It's all on the memory. Wow. Yeah, when I was cycling, I was absolutely knackered. And like, you'd think you'd write a little diary in your journal, but I just went no. to bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, we did we did a journal thing for for Atlantic Row and just mm. similar to like what you say every single day entry got shorter and shorter yeah you just you just shorter. can't be bothered at the end it's yeah, really yeah, bad. yeah. <laughs> yeah it, is, it is really bad uh yeah <laughs> maybe a dictaphone the, the people who do keep journals I think they're, they're quite lucky but it's just in the moment you just you get quite lazy and I did take a lot of photographs, however, and that's really good memory prompts. Um, ah, yeah, good shout. Yeah, so that helps yeah. you bring back the story. Bring back the story, the characters. Yeah, visualise. Mm. And, you know, all the, all the big stories of, like, getting hit by a car or breaking up with Fanola or being hospitalised in China, all those stories, they 
come straight out of the brain because they're sort of yeah they're like a bit more traumatic type ones you know dramatic ones yeah now that you've um now that it's like two years on from when you cycled are you ever kind of in a point where you're like oh my god i keep talking about it so much like it's just all i talk about or you've like you've quite moved on from it nicely or um, <laughs> no, I do talk about it a lot, but I loved it. It was the biggest, the best and biggest three years of my life. So, you know, yeah. I wouldn't want to talk about it. Um, I do have other plans and there's lots of more things that I would like to do. But I'm also quite lucky that, you know, because I've made my job my passion, yeah. I'm constantly reinventing what I enjoy and what I'm doing. So it's like, it didn't feel like that just brought the end of my adventurous lifestyle. I've yeah. sort of carried on in a way that I get paid for it now, which is really, really amazing because... Um, you know, you then can just carry on doing it without financial restrictions, which is really fun. Really, yeah. Really did you think that when you came home from that, did you think that it was going to carry on as much as it did and maybe get into a career like you have? Or mm, No, I got very, very lucky. I think um, it's just dumb luck. I just luckily, because of the trip, actually, it's not dumb luck. I just say the jobs that I've got have been because of this trip. So. Yeah. You know, when I was working in the Middle East, I was a stand-up paddleboard instructor. No, I'd never paddleboard before. But the guy really liked the idea of, of me cycling around the world. So he was like, ah, oh, you know what, we'll give you a go. And then <laughs> um, when I got the job as a bicycle tour guide, obviously the fact that I'd cycle around the world had the company, the Canadian company, TDA Cycling, said, you know what, I like, you've done that, you can definitely take people on trips. It's not a problem. So yeah. by doing that trip, it actually allowed me to get the jobs that I really loved and really do now which is very exciting yeah Obviously, no big, no big dent into that but you know i'm sure one day it will rejoin again yeah Open, it's opened a massive doors doors to you sort of thing it's, it is incredible when you yeah you're so driven you have this vision you want to achieve this goal right and it becomes so like part of your soul mm -hmm. like everything revolves around it like every decision you make is towards that goal you, you know the, you, you know where i'm coming from right yeah, and then so when so when the goal of course is achieved and things like and you get there and you get afterwards it's like that still is part of you like you've taken that that's part of you so it is for you not to talk about it it's almost like you're not talking about part of your soul yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you've kind of like forged you know and you've you've learned so much and grounded your new your new, your new life around it so it, it makes complete sense to talk about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I was thinking? Um, I don't know if you watch Big Bang Theory, but um, one of the people on there is like an astronaut, so he goes out to space. And then like the episodes after that, as he's talking about how he went to space, and all you can see is like his family around him, like yes, okay, we get it. You went to space. <laughs> <laughs> Loves it. <laughs> yeah, why would you not want to talk about that if you've done something so cool? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I my family and friends. Um, just a quick one before we end. You've obviously cycled most countries in the world now. In your opinion, where is the best, like, what is the best country to cycle in when you consider, I don't know, like, how easy it was to cycle, the like the scenery, the people? Yeah. So um, I've often thought about this question. It's one I get quite a lot, so it's quite a good one to end on. Now, if yeah. I was going to say my top five countries to start with, and then we'll narrow it down to number one. So like my, of, of the countries that I've cycled in, I would say got Australia, Romania, Kyrgyzstan, Peru and Bolivia are my favourites. Yeah. Um, and my favourite, favourite, favourite of that five is Kyrgyzstan. Um, it is in Central Asia. Yeah. On the border of China and um, Russia. And it sits um, in the middle. It has the most beautiful mountain, 7,000 metre peaks all around you it is cold it is raw it is a real experience it's cheap it's beautiful you can cycle everywhere without any hassle the people are lovely you can buy a beer for 50p like it's just got everything and it's got the most beautiful road in in the world i rode from bishkek to osh over the mountains and it was the most beautiful scenery i've ever seen in my life and that scenery is is what makes the trip is what is the memory scenery yeah. and the people um and you know you can camp wherever you want you can just pull off the road and you've got these glacial streams coming down and this lovely lush green landscape and you can camp there or you can camp on the top of the pass where it's minus minus 15 at night you've got to wear two sleeping bags to get in 
it's a real, <laughs> real adventure and it's super, super fun and beautiful. So that would be my favourite country and one I recommend everybody visit. Yeah. I've heard that one from many adventurers who've gone through there. They, it is a, it is one of the hit ones. I've heard it so many times now, Kyrgyzstan. This yeah. it's been what it's been it's on my list now because I've heard I've heard it too many times now. Like everyone <laughs> says it's their favourite place. Yeah, it really is it's, special. It's, 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 it's yeah, it's crazy, huh? In Romania, did you go down the Transvagasian Way? Like, did you do uh, that part? That's so not on this trip, but okay. I have I've worked okay. on that on that road. Oh, so you've done I that way. Nice. Yeah, I've guided on that road with um clients, and it's beautiful. That whole region of Transylvania is absolutely yeah. stunning. Have you done it? Oh no, I've driven it. I've just I've never cycled it. I, yeah, I would love to cycle it. It looks amazing. You should. Really? Yeah, it's really well done. The last time I was there, when I was guiding. Um, you there was we're coming down the pass on the other side, so all the clients come up to the top, yeah. We get yeah. to the hotel at the top and we camp there, and then we go down the following day. And it was I was in the car actually that day, we're driving down behind the riders, making sure they are safe. Um, and we see a bear on the side of the road, big Romanian brown bear. Oh, you got to see the Romanian bear, we were looking yeah. for that one, we didn't get to really, see one in the end. Yeah, it was really lucky. And he was just still yeah. on the road, and the car coming the other direction stopped. And threw the bear a baguette. <laughs> this bear <laughs> grabs the baguette, gets into the woods. I'm like, right. It's <laughs> incredible. Oh my god. Really lovely place as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're done. If you want to tell our listeners where they can find you, any up and coming projects you've got, anything like that. All right, thank you. So you can find me on my website, timmillican.com, or on Instagram, where I post most of my recent adventures, which is instagram.com uh, forward slash tim c millican um, my book is coming out in the middle of february so that is available on amazon or via my website um, if you get the copy on the website it'll have color pictures in for the same price so i'd recommend you purchase that one because it's the amazon one is only black and white so um, that's timmillican.com and that should be out on the middle of february so that's exciting news cool awesome. i'll link your um website in the description box if people want to find that out easier for them but yeah thank you so much for coming on um oh, yeah <laughs> yeah it was really good to, uh, to hear your stories and and what you've been up to do tim and uh it's it's it's, it's lovely to hear that you're you're helping uh, the youth uh, and getting them outdoors and doing that that is that is like for me that's one of the best things you've said in this in this podcast is, yeah is is a is the give that you're giving thank you yeah. no my pleasure thank you very much Thank you for tuning into our podcast. To listen to other Pedal for Park podcasts, sponsor us, or find out more, please visit our website, pedalforparks.co.uk. The four is a number four. Make sure you give us a like and a follow of this podcast wherever you've listened to it. It makes a huge difference in getting our message out there. We're also very active on social media channels too. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is pedal for parks and that is a number four as well in, in the middle there. This is where we post more content like this. So once again, thank you and stay tuned.